Good morning. Welcome to um, Time Change Sunday and Spring Break Sunday, right? Um, stay. Uh, we're going to be in John 6 this morning, uh, the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. You, if you've been in church before, you've probably heard this story before, but um, I am really excited to be with you guys this morning and to open God's word. I know it's a, a bit different, right? There's less of, you know, half the church is out of town or doing something right now and it's just us here. But I want to remind you is we have a risen savior and we have the word of God this morning. And so we have reason to celebrate and to be excited. And so I'm excited to be here. Um, What's interesting about this passage, this is the only miracle recorded for, in all four Gospels. And so um, all four authors recorded this miracle. And this is the fourth sign so far in the book of John. We had the, the water into wine. We had the healing of the official son. And we had the healing of the disabled man at the pool. And so this is the fourth kind of sign that Jesus is showing to declare and reveal his glory to the world. I, I read this, this, this quote this week about this passage and about the bread in particular, and it just really inspired me. One of the reasons God created bread or created the grain and the water and yeast and fire and human intelligence to make it, and I mean the really good kind, that's not mainly air, is so that when Jesus Christ came into the world, he would be able to use the enjoyment of bread and the nourishment of bread as an illustration of what it means to believe on him and be satisfied with him. I believe that with all my heart. Bread exists to help us know what it is like to be satisfied in Jesus. This is true for water in John 4, 14, and light in John 1, 9, and every other good thing that God has made. Nothing exists for itself. All things were created through him and for him. Every honorable pleasure that we have, have in the created world is designed by God to give us a faint taste of heaven and make us hunger for Christ. Every partial satisfaction in this life points to the perfect satisfaction, satisfaction in Jesus who made the world. And so here, here's the tension for us this morning as we open this passage up, is I hear that and my heart leaps with excitement. And I say yes and amen. And then I sing, taste and see the Lord is good. And I sing that Jesus is better. But here's our problem. We are too obsessed with the bread of this world, aren't we? We see too many times with physical eyes and not spiritual eyes. Many times our emotions rise and fall on how the physical things of this world is going. On the good days were good and the bad days were bad. Because we're looking to this earthly bread to do what it cannot do, which is to satisfy us. Let's go to John 6. It says here, after this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. So Jesus went up on a mountain and he sat down there with his disciples. So the word has gotten out. 
He's doing these signs all, and the people are hearing about Jesus, and they are excited. They, they want to know what is going on with this guy who is doing all these things. This huge crowd was not just 5,000 people, but in verse 10, you see, it was 5,000 men. So it's probably closer to around 8,000 people total that are seeking and pursuing Jesus. And you would think if Jesus thought like we did, if he thought with these kind of fleshly, physical eyes and perspective, he would think, okay, I have finally arrived. I have 8,000 hungry people following me around. I am doing something right. You would think, okay, we got to feed this. We got to work this. We got to grow this from here. But Jesus, he does the exact opposite. Look at verse four. Now the Passover, a Jewish festival was near. This is a very random thing to be in this passage. But John, see, John is writing, the author of this gospel, John, is writing to a Jewish audience. And the people in this story are a Jewish people. Even at the end of, of chapter five, he writes about how Jesus refers to Moses being the accuser. See, he's one of this Jewish audience to understand, just like Jesus did, what was the true purpose of this miracle. Because the Jewish audience, they wanted that king, right? And so they're thinking with those kinds of a lens. Let's keep going. So in verse five, so when Jesus looked up and he noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, where will we buy the bread so that these people can eat? Hear this, you know, if we had 8,000 folks in our town in Trueport Bossier following Jesus, we might be hungry at lunch today, but we would not be like this kind of hungry. These people were hungry and there weren't fridges at home with food stored for them. They needed food. They were hungry. We kind of see this kind of first thought from John. Jesus notices and Jesus deeply cares about people's physical needs. He deeply cares about our physical needs. See, it's this idea of compassion. This compassion that Jesus has for the people around him. And it comes in waves over and over again in his ministry. It drives him to heal the sick. Matthew 14, 14 says this, he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. He fed the hungry. We see this passage. He taught the crowds. He had compassion on them because to teach them saying many things in Mark 6. He wiped away tears from the bereaved in Luke 7, 13. This Greek word for compassion you see in the gospels it's the same in all these texts and it refers to most literally the bowels or the guts, the very innermost parts of a person. I have this thing when I'm playing with my kids where um, my boys could wrestle literally 24 hours a day and be very happy. I had a neighbor come to me the other day and said, how do you talk about Hayes? Like, oh, what, what did Hayes do? He said, well, he, he keeps like kicking kids in the nose and the face and he busted my son's nose the other day. I was like, oh, I'm sorry about that. And so got to teach Hayes to calm down, but we, we wrestle and we do this stuff. And there's these times when I, I think one of them is hurt, like really like broken arm kind of hurt, right? Or they fall down. I might've pushed too hard kind of thing. And there's literally inside of me, I, like I have this almost like physical gut reaction to them being in pain. 
And if you're a parent, you probably understand that kind of pain, right? When you see your child really suffer. Well, it's that kind of compassion, that kind of pity that drives Jesus to meet physical needs. Listen, I read this quote this week. It said this, Jesus is love covered in flesh. You ever seen Terminator when they like rip their skin away and it's nothing but like, you know, metal? But Jesus is love covered in flesh. And I think this past year, I was with my mom last night and my grandmother passed away a few months ago. And I remember this vividly, you know, this time last year, she won the Mardi Gras, Mardi Gras queen at her nursing home was fully alive and vibrant. My mom's seeing her every single day. And then because of the pandemic, things just shut down and, and could not see her, could not wither away. She just, she just withered away. God love her. And then she passed away. And my mom was talking last night about how they're going to open their son back up. And my mom just started crying because she was just so sad that she missed that time with her mother. And it's in those things right then that we have to know this. Yes, Jesus comes to reveal his glory. Yes, he is. But hear this. Jesus hurts with us. Jesus loves his people. He does not want us to suffer. You see, Jesus sees here five, 8,000 hungry people, and he knows the great truth they need to know. He knows the weighty truth that he's revealing through his glory. But he also knows they are hungry people and he is moved to compassion because Jesus is love covered in flesh. See, part of revealing his glory, which is John's goal in this gospel, is to reveal Jesus' heart, to reveal his love for others. But that's not all that we see in this text. Let's keep going. In verse 6, he asked Philip this to test him. For he himself knew what he was going to do. He is playing games with Philip. He's just testing him right there, right? It is your kids, right? He is testing him to see what he's going to do. So Philip answered him, it is 200 denarii worth of bread. That wouldn't be enough for each of them to have even a little. So, so we see this shift away from the crowds and Jesus to this, to this man named Philip. And it's like, why Philip? Why, why this guy? Well, he was from this area. He was singled out because he was a native of Bethsaida, possibly the closest town. So Philip would know where to go for food because Philip knew the area. He's like asking me, well, where do I go to get a, a burger today? I would know where to tell you where to go. And so how much was 200 denarii worth of bread to feed all these people, 8,000 people? It's hard to kind of estimate this. The Living Bible says this, it would take a fortune to begin to do it. So to Philip, the task was impossible. It was roughly a year's worth of wages to feed these people. So Philip sees this impossible thing and Jesus testing Philip. He's testing him. But did he pass this test or not? You see, the answer of what Philip said about the 200 denarii, That was the right answer on a, like a very physical level. And Jesus does not judge him. Now, now he could have said stuff like, well, we know you'll provide Jesus. He, would, he could have gave the right Sunday school answer, but he didn't. But Jesus did not chastise him, did not get on to him. This suggests this testing of Philip was more for the reader of this text, of this passage, and the benefit 
for Philip of how do we respond in the midst of, in a sense, the impossible, in the midst of when things, the things that we have are just not quite enough. And what's tough for us today is that many times, for many of us, that is not a financial issue. The only time we're met with that is when there's a health problem with us or a loved one, right? When we literally, we have nothing to do. We can do nothing to fix them. And I, I think that's why the pandemic was so, so traumatic for many people. It's because we've never really gone through real pain, real worry for our actual physical health. And it led to all kinds of worry and anxiety. We keep going. So Andrew, Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five loaves and two fish. He has a Lunchable is what he has. But what are, the, what, what are they for so many people? Jesus said, have the people sit down. See, he knows. Jesus knows. Jesus is completely in control, right? His hand is like this. There's no shaking. There's no worry. There's no concern. He is fully in control. And here this church, when life feels overwhelming, when life is just so discouraging, Jesus is there and his hand is not wavering. He is in control. He says, sit down. See, there's plenty of grass in this place, so they sit down. The men numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus, he took the loaves. After giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, also with the fish, as much as they wanted. They came hungry and then ended with Golden Corral, the buffet-style thing, right? Is that still a restaurant anymore about Golden Corral? It's not, is it? It is? Amen. Amen. It should be. And so, Western Sizzler, anybody back in the day? Okay, there we go. There we go. Um, where was I? And when they were full, I read that this day, this week, and it just so encouraged me. When they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. So why this command at the end here? Why this command or why is he in this passage to gather the pieces that are left over? Let nothing be wasted. D.A. Carson says this about this passage or this section right here, that there were 12 baskets, that there were 12 is almost certainly significant. See, the Lord has enough to supply the needs of the 12 tribes of Israel. Remember, he's writing to a Jewish audience. These are a Jewish people. This is making sense for them. And see, all four gospels in this draw attention to that number. From, from the history of the church, it's been common to argue that the feeding of the 5,000 represents the Lord's provision for the Jews. Through him doing this, he's done, I will take care of my chosen people and their physical needs. In the feeding of the 4,000 in other gospels, the seven baskets left over represent the Lord's provision for the Gentiles, for the lost sons. Certainly this word for basket is used in all four accounts of the feeding of the 5,000 
And this has very Jewish associations. Whereas the basket and the feeding of the 4,000 in Matthew and Mark, it does not. And this leads to our, our first kind of main thought for today's text. There is no need in Jesus' kingdom. Listen, when Jesus is here, the king's on the throne and there's nothing in the way. There is no need in his kingdom. Listen, we tend to think the miracles of the gospels as being interruptions of the natural order. I read this great book called Gentle and Lowly by somebody. I can't remember their name right now. It's a phenomenal book. I encourage you all. And he says this here. Miracles are not an interruption of the natural order, but the restoration of the natural order. We are so used to a fallen world. We are so used to things being hard that sickness, disease, hunger, pain, death seem natural. Hear this. They are the interruption. See, when Jesus expels demons and he heals the sick and he feeds the hungry, he is driving out the creation, the, the, the powers of destruction, and healing and restoring created beings who are hurt and sick. The lordship of God to which the healing witness restores creation to health. Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in the natural world. They are the only truly natural thing in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. In his kingdom, there is no need. There is abundance. There is abundance. We see this in the garden, right? This beautiful picture of just abundance for Adam and Eve, right? When then they turn away and sin enters the world. But God still provides for his people, right? He literally rains down manna for his people. What do they do? They complain. He gives them water from a rock. What do they do? They do complain. What does he tell us in Matthew 6? Do not worry, for he clothes the grass in the fields. He feeds the birds of the air. Do not worry, I will take care of you. In his, there is no need in his kingdom, but there is abundance. And then one day, when he does return, and he is fully, when he returns and he renews the new heavens and new earth, it says this in Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. There is no need. There is abundance in God's kingdom. There is abundance in God's kingdom. But hear this. This story, this passage, is not primarily about Jesus meeting a physical need. It's important. We remember that, but it's not the, the main point of this passage. Go to verse 14. So he fed them. They're full. They're like, ooh, that was good. And he says this. The people saw the sign that he had done. 
Can you imagine that, being 8,000 people there, and he does this? Just, just this great just picture of his power and his love. And they said, this truly is the prophet who has come into the world. And this phrase, the prophet, is this reference back to Deuteronomy 18.15, where Moses says this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. This reference, the audience that's really understand, and the people that were there, they were like, this guy is the new Moses. He's going to deliver us from the Roman people, from, the, from all this stuff. He's going to feed us, take care of us. The Messiah has come. Look at verse 15. Therefore, when Jesus realized they were about to come and take him by force, we're going to make you king right now. To make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When he had talked about his marketing, like he's ready to go, they love him, go for it, Jesus. This was not his plan. Jesus withdrew. Why? It's our second point. Our spiritual need is greater than our physical need. He withdrew because he didn't want to confuse them and make them think that their physical need was the primary thing of importance. Yes, he loves. Yes, he had compassion. Yes, he fed. Yes, he heals. But the primary need is not physical, it is spiritual. And this is the through line throughout the book of John. Over and over and over again, Think about in John 2, he's talking to the the Jewish leaders. He says, I'm going to destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. They have no idea what he's talking about because they just see a temple. They see the physical, not the spiritual. Or Nicodemus, he said, you need to be born again. And he was like, well, how can I be born? What do you mean be born again? He's seeing through the physical and not the spiritual. The woman at the well, he thought he'd give her living water. And she said, well, where's your bucket? Because she's seeing with the physical and not the spiritual. See, John is trying to help the readers see, the audience see, that Jesus came to meet more than just a physical need. Look at verse 16. So he withdraws, it says here in verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. Darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. A high wind arose and the sea began to churn. And after they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. Once again, revealing his glory. Creation cannot hold him down. This isn't like a few feet Three or four miles, he's chilling, walking on the water. We cannot fathom the power and glory of Jesus. He was coming near the boat, and they were afraid. I don't blame them. Honestly, I don't. But I see Jesus walking on the water, coming towards, I'm like, whoa, what's going on here? Because that is just a, a level of just sovereignty and power that I can't fully comprehend. 
But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him on board. And at once the boat was at the shore where they were heading. What keeps going. The next day, the crowd, they had stayed on the other side of the sea. And they saw there had only been one boat. And they saw that Jesus had not boarded the boat with his disciples. But that his disciples had gone off alone. Like, where is Jesus? He, there's only one boat gone. We didn't see him go. So where is Jesus, they're saying. So some boats from Tiberias came near the place where they'd eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went into Capernaum looking for Jesus. In a sense, they had found their meal ticket. Listen, they found their meal ticket. They didn't find a savior. Let's keep going. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? He answered, truly, I tell you. This is really important. He's trying to help them see. You are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and you were filled. You wanted me because I gave you what you wanted. He says here, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. Do not work for the food that perishes. Do not look primarily to the physical, but to the spiritual. Listen, as great as their physical need was, and it was great, and he did meet that need with abundance. It shows his heart, his compassion. As great as their need was, it was nothing compared to their spiritual need. And we start to see kind of like the, the central idea of this passage. That yes, we all have physical needs. And sometimes they are great physical needs. And we should look to our Father to meet our needs. But hear this, church. There is nothing greater than your spiritual need for a Savior. There's nothing greater than that. Nothing. And sometimes the cares of this world, if I am honest, confuse me. I think the point of this life is to get through it happy and unscathed. And I lose sight of Jesus because I'm looking at perishable things. And here's the tricky part about, about these perishable items. They're not necessarily bad things. Listen, bread is not a bad thing. Our spouse, our kids, our job, our money, our health, they're not bad things. But hear this, all of those are perishable things. None of those things can fully, can fully satisfy you the way the bread of life can satisfy you. And when we arrange and fill and organize our lives around perishable things, we end up living perishable lives. And yes, Jesus loves and has moved to compassion at our physical needs, but he has much greater plans for us. As we sang today, Jesus is better. In the good times and the bad times, Jesus is better. He gives, he takes away. Blessed is the name of the Lord because Jesus is better. And the hard part for us in, in our very, I'll just say this, easy life we live, 
I was reading this morning about our friends over across the sea in Asia. And this story about they do not know what's going to happen tomorrow. About their safety, about one of their kids can't get diapers right now. I mean, it is a level of need that we don't understand here. We just, we just don't get it. And I think sometimes we get caught up that everything in life should be easy. And when things are hard, we just kind of jump ship. But hear this, it's a gift from God when things are hard. Because when he removes the perishable from us sometimes, I'm not trying to belittle anybody's pain, but he removes these things that we cling to so tightly that cannot satisfy. It's a loving father saying, look, this bread is better. This perishable bread you're eating will not satisfy it. So I'm going to take away your money. Sometimes he'll allow you to lose your health, but he does work all things together for the good of those who love him because our greatest need is not physical, it is spiritual. So we end our time today with, well, what do we do? If, if our greatest need is not physical, but spiritual, what do we do? Look at verse 28. Jesus tells us, they asked him, what can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent, that we believe in Jesus. This is our last point. What do we do? We believe with childlike, forsaking all kind of faith. We believe with childlike, forsaking all kind of faith. Hear this, church. This is not easy or cheap faith. This is not VBS faith. Nothing wrong with VBS. You got to say that's great. I'm not saying it's wrong. But it's not that easy faith. This is not fire insurance. This is not make my spouse happy for a while kind of faith. This is childlike, forsaking everything kind of faith. This is humbling, sacrificial faith. It's, here's what I mean with childlike faith. It means that you have nothing to offer. You have nothing to offer. You stop bringing your good works, your intellect, your experience, all the stuff. You have nothing to offer. You're a humble child that's completely in need. And with that in mind, you forsake all. There is nothing that you're going to that you're going to bring with you. You're going to sell the treasure in the field because you found the great treasure. It's this idea when we forsake all, listen, it's not a sacrifice to give up one dollar for a million dollars. What I mean by that is like, it's not a sacrifice for you to give up all the things of this world to trust and pursue Jesus. That's not a sacrifice. It feels like one because we're so blinded. But listen, the trade is not equitable. To forsake all, but to get Jesus, we win every single time. Amen? And we forget that. We're blinded by that. And see, we get a glimpse in this story of this point, right? He used a child, doesn't he? A little boy with like nothing to offer, but he gives everything. This great picture of how we believe, like a child giving all our stuff, putting all of our chips in the middle of the table saying, God, this is your thing. I'm going to trust you. So what does this look like? I think there's two ways we believe today that I would encourage you that I'm going to ask you to spiritually consider this morning. Two ways for you to believe. The first is this. 
to believe with childlike, forsaking all kind of faith for the first time. This is a smaller crowd today, but I still believe there's many people in this room who have tried to follow Jesus with cheap faith. Fire insurance faith, not childlike, forsaking all kind of faith. And I don't know where you're at today. Your physical, emotional needs could be deep. And here, Jesus cares greatly about those needs. But hear this today. Your spiritual need is greater than your physical need. And today is the day of repentance. Today is the day to stop playing games. Forsake all like a child. Come to the heavenly Savior and ask him to forgive you of your sins and to make you new. I believe there's some in this room. That's their step today. And if that's you, there's a card at your table or I'll be in the back. Me and Jeff will be in the back. I'm going to pray with you. Come pray with us and talk to us. We want to help you take that to the faith. That's the first way. Second way is for you to progress deeper into childlike, forsaking all kind of faith. I think many of us in this room, we've professed true faith. We have had that, that moment. We were walking with Christ. We've given him our lives. But it's stagnant. It's stagnant. The cares of this world, the perishable bread of this world, we are just way too full on that. We're kind of lost in the moment. Today is your day of repentance. He is a friend of sinners. When you bring your stuff to Christ, he does, not, he does not hold his nose. He embraces you with love. I don't know where any of us are today in, in all this kind of stuff. I, I know for me this week, it's been a week of repentance. Because thing after thing has shown me that I am trusting, I'm looking to, being satisfied, comforted, hoping in perishable, stale bread. And in front of us, we have a chance to pursue trust in and believe in the bread of life. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for thank you for your mercy and your grace in my life. That as as we stumble (laughs) our sin is deep, your mercy is more. Father, I ask that through your spirit, even today, Lord, you will lead us to repentance. Not to cheap faith, but to godly repentance that makes men and women new. For my brothers and sisters who were beaten down, who were tired, who were convicted in this moment, Father. Let your kindness, please let your kindness lead us to repentance. Let us come home to our Father. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for the just unbelievable blessing to gather, open your word, and worship you. Lord, speak to us. We love you, Jesus. We pray all this in your name.